Well, the last uh, part of the evening here, we have um, all the, the speakers up here to have a, a short panel discussion um, and open it up to any, any questions that the audience has. Um, Dr. Hildebrand has a microphone. He can bring it around if anybody has a question for one of the panelists or wants the panel to uh, discuss uh, something that came up today or any other uh, question that they have about the, the, the topic, evolution and the Catholic understanding of creation. So. Um, yeah, one, one of the things, John, I would just like to ask you as an ignorant biologist, um, how much does uh, Augustine, um, with the, 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 the rational uh, seeds, how, how much freedom does he see in creation, right? That, that, that uh, uh, you're talking about it's not deterministic, but, but is the unfolding of that, how, is it uh, the, the freedom that creation has? Is that something he talks about and relates to? Well, that's a good question. Um, to my knowledge, which is not, okay, which really isn't exhaustive on this question in Augustine, I don't really know. Um, I don't, he doesn't, he doesn't really talk about it in the same detail that Irenaeus does. Um, but at the same time, he makes it very clear, I think, that this is not, it's, it's not, so what I'm trying to do is extrapolate from some da data points in the text. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I'm trying to put them together rather than, I haven't found a place where Augustine says all these things, you might say, together. Um, but he does say that he does distinguish the ratio seminales or the presence of them in created things as a third stage, you might say, of creation. So it's um, it's not it's not it's not well I shouldn't say just providence, but it's part of creation itself that the creator in some way is present to the creature and that that's not a material presence even though it well just like God's own eternal just like God can act right um, and, but it's a transcendent act. It doesn't involve any change in God. And it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, no, it's not a myth. It's not, I keep going back to Hawking and Mladenov. They have this horrible image of God igniting the blue touch paper of creation. And so it's, creation is thought of then as an act in, within the world already somehow existing. Whereas the ratio seminales can't be that in miniature form. They, they, they have to be, whatever creation is, all, in and of itself, the presence of God's creative intention or plan in each thing can't be the blue 
can't be lighting the blue touch paper. It has to be something more than that. And therefore, it can't compromise. It has to, not, not only can it compromise the freedom of the creature, but it has to, in some way, create it um, or engender it. That's about all I can say. And the, and the reason I'm interested in doing it is that the, it, it's because the ratio seminales, they're often presented as though they were simply material seeds um, that then unfold sort of deterministically. And I think that's, a, that's just too simplistic an, an idea. It's as though it's as though the creator determines as though he, he were a, a material force. Anyway, that's his, so I'm kind of trying to draw this out as, as a question more than as a settled result relative to, to what I think are misconceptions that you often hear about it. Thanks. Very good. Any questions from the floor? No? I have one, if, if no one else has one. Um, I thought the, the discussion earlier, which I feel only had just begun, on um, monogenism and polygenism was very interesting. So Ken, at the end of your paper, you offered a, a theory um, whereby one could square the, the scientific evidence with um, that passage in Humani Generis that rejects polygenism. I, I was wondering if there are other theories about how to handle that um, uh, that apparent contradiction between what the science seems to point to uh, on the one hand and what, what Pius is saying. Do, uh, are, there, are there a range of positions on that? Um, um, I wondered if any of the other panelists had ideas about, about uh, what's going on with, with monotism and polygenism and, and how to square uh, the science with what, what Pius is saying. I think it's Humani Janus, paragraph 37. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, it's the the general approach that I took seems to be not entirely original in the sense that that um, there are attempts earlier to do something like this. Uh, botanists at Louvain and Camille Miller proposed something that was in some ways similar to what he did, but in other ways different. Uh, in particular, he, he emphasized that even if you had a population all 
human, all fully human, that nevertheless, within a couple of generations, everybody would be descended from Adam. So from then on, everybody would be uh, descended from Adam and original, I mean, would be a, a guilty of original sin and so on. That was uh, delayed to the, to the, uh, to the holy office that was in managing the index. And that article was put uh, on the index. Uh, there's a short article about it, was put in, in uh, L'Osservatore Romano. Uh, I have not seen the, uh, the, the documents associated, I mean, the discussion at the, at, the, uh, at the index or at the Holy Office yet, because as I said, I was only in Rome for a week and then they, they uh, uh, shut down and they're supposed to send me some stuff, but I guess they're behind. This is, this is Italy after all. <laughs> shouldn't say that. I mean, you know, to be fair to them, they've got a, uh, you know, got a small office and the documents are old and have to be handled with care and so on. They've just not gotten them to me uh, yet. So, but I mean, in general, I'm sure, and it seems clear from the article on the Observatory Romano, that the problem is that he's still got fully human beings free of original sin, Adam's cousins, you might say. That is, aren't they descended from him to as a kind of a co-animite group. Maybe within a couple generations, everybody will be descended from him, but for a couple generations, not everybody is. And the Vatican uh, rejected that. There's another guy named Blandino who wrote about this stuff a little bit, and I think his work in the end has the same, same uh, problem. So other people have tried something like this. As I, I mentioned in the, the paper, there was a, a priest named uh, uh, Father uh, Alexander who, who also proposed something like this. I, I think my theories differ from him because he was more centered on genetics and mine on, on genealogy. Uh, and I think that genetics, uh, reliance on genetics creates some problems for him that, that the geneolo genealogical approach does not, uh, does not affect, uh, that are not affect, I mean, not uh, count against it's my approach. So, so some other people have tried stuff like that. There's a guy named uh, Joshua Swami Das who does it, but he's got a lot of problems, which I summarized in, uh, in a, an article that I wrote in the Society of Catholic Scientists. So it's, uh, he tried it, there's some, some stuff and some footnotes that are interesting, but it's in the end, it's, uh, it's not anything I think a Catholic can, can, can accept. So does that, I mean, does that give some thought to, or answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that's good, thank you, yeah. I can't help it. Um, you had asked, just hold on a second, um, a possible alternative or maybe another way to think about it that we haven't explored yet. Um, and what may be helpful is thinking about um, a certain way to model ensoulment and so the way Aquinas would do it. So even though we might have, most of us in the main would uh, reject his embryology, the way he conceives of ensoulment is that it's a process of continuous um, disposing of matter to such a point where matter is properly disposed to then to receive a human soul. And this happens in the womb. Um, well, it seems to me that at some point, and so actually Dan and I were talking about this right after the talk, right after 
Ken's talk. Um, you might have a position where in hominids, at one point, um, nature gives rise to a genetic variation. And so when we talk about humans that are human, maybe in a scientific sense, which is very ambiguous in many regards, morphology, genetics, et cetera, um, that are close enough that what you have now is a disposing genetic variation. And that ensoulment for Adam, for the first man and first woman, happens in a womb. And what happened in the womb of a non-human animal, something maybe close in some regard. Um, and so they come into the world, and you can talk about preternatural gifts, however long they were had, what the aboriginal decision was for them to fall, this kind of thing. Now, once this happens, um, they fall back on their animal natures. So from Aquinas' standpoint, human nature as we find it is just human nature without grace and the preternatural gifts. So to be under the reign of sin is to be the owner of a human nature with no preternatural gifts and no sanctifying grace. And so all of the wounds of original sin are just our nature without grace. So they return to this. Well, you do run into the uncomfortable, uh, was it distasteful it was called, um, possibility that after that, well, what do they do? Well, they would almost certainly, in returning to their nature, behave like the hominids from which they came. And what do they do when they do this? Breed and pass on this genetic variation, whether it's the Fox P2 gene, P2 gene, who the hell knows. As this genetic variation is passed on, what they pass on is now properly disposed matter like we do when we make babies. And our babies come into the world as children of Adam and Eve without the preternatural gifts and without sanctifying grace. And so every human in this regard would be from Adam, from two parents in some kind of way, right? At least in the way of genetic lineage. And we'd come into the world just as broken as we are. So when we think of original sin passed on, a thing is not passed. The key is what is not passed on. Because the vocation of Adam and Eve is to pass on these gifts to their progeny, to us. They don't because they can't, and neither can we. So maybe something along those lines is an alternative, whether it, um, it obviously has problems and all kinds of things, even uh, that such a variation would come about in two, do you follow, is highly unlikely. But we're all waiting in the dark here. I mean, one more thing one might think about in a, something like the realm of alternatives. I mean, some people wonder, is this, is this the way God intended things, that he's intended this interbreeding or something like that? And if not, what was he, what plan did he have in mind? And we might say two, two things. First, I mean, the, what forces the explanation of interbreeding is the variety of, of, uh, of, of genes in the human population. Now, that's just a fact. It's not, well, I, I mean, it wouldn't, certainly wouldn't have to think, and God's plan was for there to be this great uh, genetic variation that we share with the chimpanzees. So, second, of course, God might have had other things in mind that he would have done if Adam had not sinned. Maybe he would have uh, infused into other of these hominids souls at a certain time. I don't know. I, all I say is that it's, I don't think I'm committed to the fact that God uh, had the interbreeding 
in mind from the beginning to the extent that we want. I mean, I then realize to elaborate, this creates complications about, you know, God's intentions given that we sin and, and, and so on. But, but I don't think it, that I'm committed to that kind of this is being the inevitable route to human beings filling the earth. One, one, one thing before I shut up would think is crucially important is to avoid the notion of pre-existing hominids walking around and getting zapped with the soul cannon. Um, you see what I mean? Yeah, the way soul, soul infusion is in the part of Aquinas to say that the normal concourse of nature, such that when in nature you have properly disposed matter, that matter is informed by a human soul. Uh, John of St. Thomas, who was an early expositor of St. Thomas, he was Portuguese, I think his real name was Poisson or something like that, um, uses the, uh, this is the description, properly disposed matter calls out of justice to God for a soul. Meaning because this is the way God has designed nature to be. So I think it would be important that however soul ensoulment happens with our first parents, if we want to do a kind of an explanation in this kind of model, that it would be very important it happens in the way it happens by nature and not in some kind of strange soul canon way. Well, I think you have to be very careful to say it happens by nature. It happens in the ordinary course of things. That is, God uh, doesn't refuse to ensoul properly disposed uh, organisms. That, that is... But it's not from nature in the sense it is not in the power of created things Correct. to produce the soul. It has to be a direct act of God. But I, I wanted to get back to this question of, of human origins and the fall and original sin and so forth. I think it's important to keep in mind several things. First of all, um, that, that some of the, a lot of this has not been definitively decided by the magisterium. So even... so. The, the question of whether the entire original population, so we know that there, weren't, there was never a time in which there were just two humans from which all of our genetic material comes. That kind of, uh, we know there was an aboriginal population of, of, of thousands from the genetic evidence. <clears throat> now, Pope Pius XII certainly told Catholics they should not embrace polygen, uh, polyg polygenism. Uh, I mean, it is hypothetically possible that God could have raised that entire population to the level of freedom and rationality that has made them uh, spiritual, uh, endowed them with spiritual faculties, with a spiritual soul. That would be polygenism. That has not been definitively ruled out by the magisterium. Pius did not say, that is unorthodox. He said, do not embrace it. Uh, because it's not apparent, at least at that time, how that could be reconciled with certain Catholic doctrines. So that has not been definitively decided. The other, another thing that doesn't sound from what uh, Ken said has been definitively decided uh, is the question when Trent said all have fallen, and, and St. Paul talks about all have sinned, could that be, and this apparently was proposed uh, to the magisterium, could that be all after a certain point? You know, after some number of generations, all have, are fallen. Could there have been some initial generations in which not all had fallen? Well, apparently that, again, has been disfavored or, 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 uh, uh, by the magisterium saying that that's not acceptable, but that was not in a definitive way. 
And so the, a lot of this is not definitively decided. Very little has been. The other thing is, this is all, will always remain in the realm of speculation because one, exactly how things worked in the, at human origins, uh, how things unfolded, has not been revealed. And secondly, it's not accessible empirically. So there's actually no way of knowing the answer uh, unless God chooses to reveal it, and he hasn't revealed it. And, and, and there's no, how could you empirically decide the, these questions? So this is a purely speculative uh, question. I think what Ken is doing is saying, if we, are, if we say we must have a monogenism, and if we say that all human beings, true humans, humans in the theological sense who have ever lived, even back to the first generation, all of them have, have, uh, have are fallen and descended from the first, from, from the first couple, uh, you can still reconcile that with all of the scientific data uh, in the way that Ken described. So his is an existence proof, as we would say in science. It's an existence proof that the, that the scientific data and this very restrictive view, theological view, of human origins can be reconciled. So one, the church hasn't definitively resolved this some of the theological points. But even if it has, Ken has shown that that wouldn't be in logically inconsistent with what scientific data has shown. Uh, but trying to speculate on alternative theories is kind of pointless. I mean, once you have the existence proof of, of consistency, what is the point of many spinning many uh, hypothetical scenarios which cannot, where there's no possibility of resolving which one is correct because there's no way of doing it empirically? Yeah, that, that last point, one last thing, and I'll, I'll uh, shut up. But um, that last point that you mentioned, Steve, really resonates with me. I find, I find it's, uh, this sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I find it so much more intellectually satisfying simply to say we don't know uh, rather than to come up with theories of human beings breeding with hominids and all this stuff. I mean, I, it just, um, like you say, you, you say it's speculative. I, I would go further to say that it, uh, I don't know, it seems kind of silly to me. We talked but, about this before in one of the breaks. Yeah. Um, there is a question, and one of the questions from the audience had to do with whether Ken's theory didn't mean that the uh, earliest humans had to interbreed with, with non-rational beings that were biologically human, but they were not rational beings. Um, now, if, as, I, as I pointed out from the floor, this is an old problem. This goes back for thousands, a couple of thousand years. People asked, who did the children of Adam and Eve mate, ma uh, marry? Who did they mate yeah. with? Mm -hmm. And this is not, this is, this is, there's only two, there are only two possibilities logically. They either mated with true human beings or they mated with someone who were not true human beings. Now, if they mated with true human beings, and, and, and there's no th third possibility. This is the law of excluded middle. This is a logical <laughs> thing. Either they were truly human or they weren't. Now, if they were truly human and you take the view, of the strict view of monogenism that there was just originally two true humans, one couple, then in the next generation, the only true humans were their offspring and therefore siblings of each other. So you're forced logically to say 
the, the, the children of the first humans mated with their siblings. Yeah. On the other hand, if they mated with not true humans, then you were in the distasteful uh, uh, situation, say they mated with non-beings who were not fully human, not true humans, not rational beings. There's no way out of that. And there's never been any way out of that dilemma. Uh, we d so, and this is a problem that goes way back before modern science. People have been asking that question from the very beginning of Christianity, and probably <laughs> before the beginning of Christianity. Um, <clears throat> I think Ken's position has the virtue that at least if you say that they interbred with beings who were not fully human, at least they were biologically human. Uh, whereas in older theories, pre-evolutionary theories, they would have had to be animals. I mean, not even biologically human. So at least, uh, but anyway, I don't think, uh, I, I, we talked about this in the break. Yeah. I, I don't, it's, the problem is not the result of speculation. The problem is, arises because of logic. And, and, uh, and, 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 and you can't get away from that. Yeah, the last thing I'll say is I think the, the logical problem that you outlined makes certain assumptions about the meaning of the biblical text and so on. But, but it's a question of did the offspring of Adam and Eve, were their mates fully human or were they not fully human? It makes no assumptions about anything. I, that's, that's, that's the law of excluded middle. <laughs> I want to pick up one other topic. You had said that you thought it would be an injustice for God not to give soul to a being who was with a bodily disposition suitable to reception of a soul. Is that? That was, that's a, was a quotation from John of St. Thomas. Oh, okay. I, I, I wasn't sure whether you endorsed it or not. It seems to me to be wrong because, uh, so we got some commented with a body uh, suitable for the infusion of a soul. And God, well, so God infuses him a soul. That hominid doesn't exist anymore because this is a substantial change. And so the, uh, then, then we got an entirely new uh, being replacing him. There's, where is the injustice that he didn't get annihilated or, uh, I mean, that he wasn't caused to cease to exist, better to say? It's, so it, it seems to me, I mean, even if you think in general, God owes things to his creatures in injustice. Um, yeah, no, I don't mean you personally. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. I mean you uh, yeah, personally. I'm actually. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't exactly my position. But anyway. Okay, I'm going to try to speculate in a non-distasteful manner. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, first of all, I think one thing that's important to realize is, regardless of how we would ever work out any of these difficulties that we find logically as we deal with the whole issue. Um, the amazing thing is that thanks to a universe that comes forth from the Logos, right, from God's creative word, we now have creatures who are capable of Logos in their own way, right, us, who to be spiritual is their natural state. That's a marvel and a wonder that I think far outpaces the questions related to monogenism and polygenism. Along with that, though, it seems to me that um, it's not untoward if 
what Steve said, and I agree with them. If really what you have in Humani Generis is, and the whole character of the encyclical is this way, a prudential intervention of the magisterium of Pius XII concerned that certain trends in theology were going to lead people in certain directions that would ultimately lead them out of the household of faith, right? That a prudential intervention, as Donum Veritatis says in 1989, always has certain imperfections, is always time-bound, and therefore, consequently, can be superseded through the passage of time, right? So I think that that's a good way of thinking about a number of things. In fact, um, Ratzinger was prefect of the congregation when it produced that document and was asked in an, in an interview what, he, what, you know, what specific things he was talking about magisterial documents in the provincial order, he said, the document says, are not free from all deficiencies. And he pointed to some specific examples, certain statements of the popes about religious freedom in the 19th century, and the early response of the Pontifical Biblical Commission. He didn't mention Humani Generis, but I do think Humani Generis has the character of those documents. And therefore, they're, they're, they're about dealing with a particular problem that may cause a loss of faith among the faithful at a particular time because of new ideas that are so new and so different than what had always been thought that they might lead people to the wrong ideas. But it seems to me that if we could allow polygenism, we could imagine a situation in which the changes necessary for a human creature to be a rational animal would occur in such a way that they could have ultimately spread through a population before they were actualized, then become actualized, and then are quickly actualized by others. Now, if this is done in a way in which, as Ratzinger also put it in his book in the beginning, relationality is wounded by sin, right? That even the very coming to the actualization of freedom and reason could itself be a process that's wounded not just by, by the way in which we raise our offspring, but also in some kind of aboriginal community. Um, I'm not saying that's the way it happened. I'm just speculating that it's, and, and thinking that that's certainly not anything that would be untoward to the Catholic faith or draw us in a direction that would make us become heretical on any point. I think it's important to, as we think through these issues and especially historically, but not just historically, to, uh, to think about the concept of rashness, which I think at first seems somewhat alien to modern economic epistemology. I mean, our, uh, our, the popular modern thought about these things is there are two, two uh, categories. One is definitively decided by the church, and the other is open to free debate. And that surely and very explicitly not the uh, idea, surely not in the first, first half of the uh, 20th century and last half of the 19th areas I'm working on. The concept of rashness is, is uh, salient there. And the idea was that um, there are things that are not defined but that were not open to debate either. Why not? Because it didn't seem very plausible, and to uh, debate them would, would uh, do more harm than, than, uh, than, than good. 
And so they are judged rash, which means that they, they're not open. They shouldn't be uh, discussed or challenged unless there's a really good reason to do so. And if there is, then uh, that's a different matter. But you've got to make that case. I think that's a kind of alien notion to us, even though we can find analogs in it. I mean, think of the, the uh, editor of a prestigious journal who gets a really crazy paper and he says, is it, I know it's wrong. Well, I can't say I know it's wrong, but the established consensus is such and so, and you gotta say more than that before I'm gonna publish your, your paper. It's, they, he wouldn't use the word, but it's rash. It's probably a better word in the theological context because the extent to which disturbing uh, certain theological views might have practical consequences, deleterious consequences on the way people live. Okay, th thank you. Thank you. Maybe we should move to um, other questions. I had a question about the um, special creation of ETH, and it was prompted by a comment you had made earlier, Dr. Bergsman, conversation, and that um, where would the special creation of Eve from Adam kind of play in um, the scenario of evolution? Because I think Dr. Bergsman said there seems to be something very theologically significant to Eve coming directly from the side of Adam. Um, and yeah, where would that play in with evolution? Well, I'm not a theologian, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say some things to let the theologians have time to to, to ponder their answers. Uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm I'm taking up time while while the real theologians think about this. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of uh, places where you could see how the uh, Eve being created in a special way would be seen as theologically significant. One is the typology, or the parallel between uh, what happened uh, at, uh, in the creation of the first humans and, and, and what happened with the, second, with the, the new Adam, Christ, and with, and with the church. Uh, so the church you know, was born out of the side of, of Christ, in a sense. Christ on the cross, he was pierced, his side was pierced, an outflow of blood and water in the account of the Passion. And that is seen as symbolizing the birth of the church, um, which is uh, the bride of Christ, which is Christ's spouse. And there, that parallels the uh, Eve being, as it were, create, born from the side of Adam. So I, I think the church was worried that if you disturbed that account of Eve's creation, you would mess up that parallelism, that typology. And... Um, and also, I think you want to say, <clears throat> clearly it's important because you want Adam and, and, and Eve to be, you know, Eve be flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. You, they want to have the same nature. You know, there, there, there's some deep uh, statement about the relation of male and female there. Uh, so there's clearly important things were at stake. But uh, I think Ken pointed out that, uh, quoted someone as saying they did not mean in the, uh, 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 you quoted some uh, theologian. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to state it and then state it for um, that they didn't mean to to make a scientific statement about the formation of the first human female. Uh, yeah, just hold it that way. So I mean, I, I think we 
talking about the creator of Harry Potter, the political commission in 1909, was it? Yeah. Said that one of the things that they were concerned about uh, was the creation of Eve from Adam. That's and right. You quoted some theologian who was in a position to know as saying they did not to endorse or to require people to believe uh, that it was done in deliberately as described in Genesis. That they did not make yeah. it. They, they, they yeah. somewhat vague language deliberately. Yeah, it was, it was Janssens, who was uh, the secretary of the commission and the uh, one who signed the, the statement. It was focused particularly on the formation of the, uh, of the first human body. So it was focused on Adam more than on Eve. And uh, yeah, I mean, we could look at the, the passage again. It's, uh, uh, but I mean, the, the heart of it was that uh, they didn't intend to rule out evolution, but I think the focus is on on Adam more than, more than Eve. They were still in the 1920s. Well, the Dorlado, for example, who was, uh, who, who was uh, uh, subject to criticism for, his, uh, for what he promised to do, uh, was pretty explicit about, uh, about Eve being a, a case of divine action. And, I mean, the anti-evolutionists thought, what kind of a halfway solution is that? You're going to have evolution of Adam, but you still got Eve to worry about. And uh, the uh, messenger, for, well, Dorlado first and then messenger, his, his, his student, were willing to live with that. Yep, there are sometimes there are, there are divine actions, and sometimes you don't need them, and some God doesn't use them. I mean, that's the kind of the way they would have, would have put it, and they thought he didn't need it in the case of, of, of uh, Adam's body or seemed not to or it wasn't clear that you didn't need such divine action so maybe evolution was fine there but if uh, I mean a messenger for example argues fairly explicitly that there are theological implications of Eve's body being formed in some sense from from uh, from Adam's and so they were willing to to, to, to live with with that so I don't have a good answer to your question as stated, but um, do have a notion of the question that would have to be answered in order to answer your question. Um, so it seems to me, and Steve actually put it very well, so one would have to come up with a theory of the relation between, say, biblical type to anti-type, this kind of thing, um, where you can still have a type fulfilled and how one could conceive and conceptually think of having a type fulfilled, let's say in history from Jesus on the cross, side being pierced, church flowing from it, this kind of thing. Um, one would have to say how this is fulfilled, or the fulfillment of a type that was symbolical and not historical. That would seem to be the question you would have to answer. Yeah, and to be honest, that's not something I've thought deeply about or could answer, though I may start thinking yeah. about it now. Do you so follow? Perhaps, you see, do you see yeah. that's, yeah. that's, so that's, that's similar that's, to like Jonah and the whale. Like, you know, the Lord uses that as an analogy. Sure. It's a resurrection, so, but we don't have to believe that. Yeah, and, and, so, yeah, and if somebody would say, yeah, and so if somebody would say um, that the genre of Jonah is religious fable or something, mm -hmm. and that would be that would be the same problem. Do you follow? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's I'm alive to the problem, but the solution I haven't thought enough to say anything responsible. Okay. I, I, here's a thought. So another piece of typology 
related is that that um, that uh, Adam ate from the fruit of the tree, and and that brought death, mm-hmm. spiritual death at least. And but we eat the the tree of the cross is is parallel uh, to the, that tree in in the in the creation narrative. We eat from the tree of the cross, and the fruit that hangs on that tree is Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we eat in, in the Eucharist, and that brings us life. Now, that typology requires that there be a tree and a fruit from which the first humans ate. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that we really have to, we are obliged, will in the long run, the church oblige us to believe that the sin of the first humans was the actual eating of an actual fruit from a tree. I suspect not. That could be a symbolic description of what the sin was. And as Corey said, it is that symbolism that is fulfilled in the New Testament without having to believe in a literal fruit, that it was an apple or a pear or something. The mechanics of getting from point A to B it would, be, it would be crucially important. Yeah. But uh, the idea is that, that, uh, that things that are in stories can serve as a type, right. as well as things that really happened serving as a, as a type. Would you not? You look like you're no, no, you just have to, I just need to be able to figure out, figure so out the I mechanics. Give another example of well, the that. examples all you want, but well, I'm trying no, to. No, I mean, uh, so for example, the flood of Noah, uh, the church fathers, if I. Uh, I Talk, I speak under correction from the real patristic scholar here. But that, of course, was a type of the destruction of, you know, of the ultimate uh, penalty of sin. That, and, the, and the ark was a, was a type of the church that saves us from that final destruction. Uh, now, in the biblical story, now, the final destruction that awaits sin is universal except for those who are saved, it's universal. And that certainly corresponds to the fact that in the biblical story, the flood in the Noah story is, covers the whole earth. It, it kills all people on earth. But I don't think the church is committed, Catholics are committed to believing that there was ever a flood that covered the whole earth, that it was truly universal. In the story it was, and that has corresponds to something theological, points to something theological, but that could just be, as Ken said, a, an element of the story acting as a type as, of, of something in the future. Anybody else? John? Anybody? Curious silence from this side of the table. Um, it's not really that useful, my thought, but it's, um, you know, Augustine believes that you have, that, that there is a material paradise, and the fact that it has a figurative or allegorical interpretation or both doesn't negate the fact that it was a material paradise. And Augustine places a lot of store on the, on the creation of Eve from Adam. Um, with regard to the tree of life, for instance, talk about the trees for a second. He thinks that the tree of life, he says it was a sacrament, so that when you, when you ate from it, 
Um, it didn't just generate life like the fruit from the other trees, but it actually made you, you know, made you immortal. So, but it, but but it's made you immortal by giving you or mediating to you the grace of immortality. So, it's a sacrament in that it's an it it um, it doesn't it doesn't feed you, well yeah in partaking of it physically it has a also a spiritual effect. But I think another way of thinking about it then is. We, we really can't imagine our way back into paradise uh, apart from that of which it is a figure. So you don't have any access to the tree of life apart from the cross or apart from the Eucharist. And you don't have any access to, to um, paradise, the Garden of Eden, apart from the church, which is, which is of which it is a figure. So the temptation is to assume we can imagine the reality behind the text. Um, whereas if the text is prophetic and points forward genuinely, then what has to control your imagination about whatever events the text describes are the types of the events. Otherwise you lose, otherwise you lose control. You can fill paradise with any with any hedonistic pleasure you want to. Like, it, and, but if you think it, that the Eucharist is the antitype or what's figured by the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life, the sacrament, then you can't think of the tree of life, the literal thing, whatever it was, apart from the gift of yourself. And we resist that, so we're not we're not likely to be able to write some kind of independent history apart from this text and what it figures, something like that. Well, I think that will uh, end the, the panel for this, night, this evening. So thank you all for uh, your comments and thank you all for attending.